Testing, one, two, three. Good morning, family. Good morning, family. All right, for those that don't know me, my name is Wayne Penn Jr. I had the honor and privilege of serving as the Worship and Connections pastor here at Riverside Community Church. And uh, before I get started, uh, a little birdie told me that today is actually James and Stacy's anniversary. It's not. <laughs> it's wrong in the bridge. When is y'all's anniversary? <laughs> July 14th. Okay. See, I could snitch on that little birdie for giving me that wrong information, but I'm, I'm going to leave that alone. Uh, all that to say, it's great to have y'all back. <laughs> it really is. You see what my brain has been since you've been gone, James? It's been, it's been yeah. But um, it's, it's truly good to see you, um, and I, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing more about what God has done in you uh, in this time of rest, in this time of kind of you know, taking a pause and really uh, delving into his presence and just coming away really with a deeper experience and understanding of what it means to commune with him and with each other. So looking forward to hearing that for sure. Um, I want to begin today by reading our text, um, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. It should be very familiar to everyone. Well, not everyone, but a lot of you who grew up in or around the church should know this parable pretty well. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Should be familiar to a lot of you. When you got it, say, I got it. <laughs> See? That's why I ask. That's why I ask. I love this, by the way. It's, it's, it's okay. See, y'all, let me, let me let y'all know something now, okay? I grew up in a talk-back church. I'm talking it was a part of the experience. So I welcome and invite feedback. Now, don't get obnoxious. <laughs> but I welcome feedback. So if, if something said hit you, say amen, say ouch, say, say what you got to say. And if you don't have the scripture yet, let me know so I don't rush. Everybody good? Awesome. Awesome. It reads, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn 
and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Man, the, the, the title of this sermon is The Law of Love. The Law of Love. Um, has anybody here ever heard of Lecrae? Who's familiar with him? Y'all raise your hands. Dope, dope. Okay. One of the, I think you can argue he's probably the greatest or one of the greatest Christian rappers ever. And I mean, frankly, he's just a dope rapper, period. Um, Lecrae has a recurring song um, that he's done throughout four of his albums. It's called Misconceptions. Are y'all familiar with that? So on, on Church Clothes 1, that album, he's got a Misconceptions 1. On Church Clothes 2, he's got a Misconceptions 2. On Church Clothes 3, he's got a Misconceptions 3. And on Church Clothes 4, if you haven't heard that album before, please go listen, listen to it. He's got a Misconceptions 4. And what he does with this repeating song is he deals with different misconceptions that people might have about the Christian walk. And he does it in a way that's just really super creative and engaging. It's a recurring theme because the misconceptions about this Christian walk are recurring. (laughs) Now, I think Jesus is tackling a recurring misconception today in our text. If you recall in Matthew 5, one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, Jesus goes through this long kind of dialogue with the audience, and he's essentially knocking down their preconceived notions about what it actually means to follow the law. And I mean, it, it, it's, it's really kind of a, an interesting thing where he's basically saying, hey, you remember what you thought about prayer? You're praying wrong. You remember what you thought about fasting? You're fasting wrong. <laughs> remember what you thought about loving your neighbor? You're doing that wrong. He goes through this long list of things, and he basically says, in your efforts to follow the letter of the law, you've not followed or kept the spirit of the law. So Jesus, in in our text today, is challenging the prevailing notion that they had in that context that you should only love your neighbor and not love your enemies, actually hate your enemies. That was what they thought. And he counters this with the very radical idea that you should love your enemies, do good to them, pray for them, both real enemies and perceived enemies. Because, you know, um, here in America, we're really good at manufacturing enemies that aren't even real, right? So basically what Jesus does is he, he expands our neighborhood. Our neighborhoods, if we're honest, can get really narrow in our minds. The people that we think should be our neighbors can be very, very narrow and limited by factors that really aren't valid. Jesus is challenging that misconception here. Uh, In Matthew 5 in particular, verses 46 to 47, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The lawyer in our text is is actually wrestling with a question that falls in line with this. His question really to Jesus, if you look at the, the, the text carefully, is basically, who am I bound by the law to love? Who am I bound by the law to love? Who is my neighbor? 
So let's dive into this. Uh, my first point here is, is the test subject. The test subject. This lawyer, this expert in the law, stands in the midst of, you know, uh, this crowd here, which implies that everybody else is sitting down. So he stands up, right, and kind of interrupts this praise party that Jesus was actually having in the previous verses. And he proceeds to put Jesus to the test, as the Pharisees and the scribes would often do. Uh, often they would try to catch Jesus slipping in his words, and they would try to discredit him by getting him to say something that would perhaps lower his credibility in the eyes of the crowds. So he asked this question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know about y'all, but I'm a fan of like situational irony. I love it when situations are like, oh, that's really interesting that you thought that and the situation is completely different from what you thought, right? This is, this is an ironic situation to me. Jesus had just finished rejoicing over the fact that God had hidden many of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. He had just finished rejoicing over that, and this lawyer who claims himself to be wise stands up and asks this question. And what this lawyer seems to be missing, and this is another ironic thing, is that he's trying to test the one who wrote the law. That, that would be the equivalent of trying to give a test to the answer sheet. That's literally what's going on here. You're not just giving it to the teacher, you're giving the test to the answer sheet. And Jesus flips the script on him. So the lawyer asked Jesus, you know, well, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus is like, well, hang on. Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? You know, the and the lawyer, surprisingly, actually answers very well. He, he basically sums up the entirety of the law with the two greatest commandments. And this reminds me of another situation um, where Jesus was actually approached by a scribe, uh, also likely an expert in the law, in Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, well, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6 here. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe here in this situation says to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you know, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus, Jesus was dope, man. Jesus had this habit of shutting folk down and, and out-reasoning them to, to the T. I love it. I, I really do. He's good at challenging what we think we know. So back to our text, Jesus acknowledges the good answer of this lawyer here, but then he throws the lawyer for a loop. Let's break this down. Uh, in verses 28 through 29 of Luke 10, he says to him, you've answered correctly. 
do this and you will live. Well, hang on. Lawyer's thrown for a loop here because by Jesus telling him to actually do this, he's implying that you're actually not doing this. And this kind of throws the lawyer for a, for, for a moment. He's like, well, okay, I, I, I thought I had this down. So it must have stung him a bit. Jesus is challenging the assumption that having an intellectual understanding of the law did not mean that he was properly practicing it. He's challenging this lawyer's assumption. This lawyer assumes, well, because I understand the law intellectually, that automatically means that I'm putting it into practice. I think this is good for us as a body to hear. I really think this is good for us, particularly here at Riverside as a body to hear. Um, that, what, Stephen, what's that crazy statistic about uh, over 80% of, of, of the folk here that call Riverside home have a college degree? Yo, that's bananas. That's wild. And it's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I, I think, frankly, it's a blessing. I think we can utilize that in numerous ways to the glory of God. But if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of assuming that head knowledge, you know, about the gospel, about the Bible, about theology, about all matters Christian, head knowledge about those things immediately translates into proper practice, into proper passion. It, it, it automatically means that I'm living these things out well. And that's not the case. It's not the case. There are two quick quotes that I want to share with you. One is from an anonymous source. You may have heard this before. Orthodoxy, or correct doctrine, does not always equal orthopraxy, which is correct practice, or orthopathy, which means correct passion. Just because you got good head knowledge doesn't mean you have good practice or good passion. R. Paul Stevens, a commentator and theologian, says the danger of mere intellectual orthodoxy is that we are tempted to think we can manage God. I think that's what the lawyer is doing here. He comes to Jesus and says, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Just give me the step, Jesus, that I need to take to get what's coming to me already. So what do I need to do? He's, he's adhering to a works-based salvation. And by the way, while I'm at it, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Answer me that. You know, since you're saying I'm missing something here, let me think about it, okay? I've got the concept of loving God down already. It, it's funny that the lawyer skips past the first part, you know, loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. He assumes he has that together. <laughs> Yet, if, if you look further on in Scripture, you know, I believe John mentions this in his letter. If you love God or claim to love God, yet you don't love your brother or your sister who you see every day, that first claim doesn't hold any weight. So the lawyer is almost in this headspace of, I think I already know the answer to this, but let me ask this anyway, just for fun, just for kicks. So Jesus, who's my neighbor? He's seeking to justify himself. Jesus is about to bust up his whole paradigm. And this actually brings me to my second point, uh, which is the case study. So it's ironic that the lawyer thinks that Jesus is the test subject, but in reality, he's the one being tested. And this parable, I would argue, 
is actually Jesus' case study for this lawyer. So let's dive into this. <laughs> I just, Jesus is being slick. It's low-key disrespectful. <laughs> he doesn't even answer the man's question. He just starts telling a story. That, if somebody, <laughs> if somebody came up to, if I asked a question to somebody, and you just go into this story, I'm just like, what are you doing? In verses 30 through 32, Jesus just begins the story. So let's dive into it. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. It can be safely assumed that this traveling man was a Jew. Based on Jesus' target audience and based on the context clues that we find in this parable. I want to make that clear because his ethnicity matters here. And we'll get to that in a moment. The man is attacked by robbers who strip him, who beat him, and then leave him half dead. Now, the road to Jerusalem, according to many uh, scholars, it ran down like this steep descent or hill through like this desolate space. So it's like going downhill in this place where there's not a whole lot of stuff around at all. It's like the perfect lurking place for robbers. So our Jewish victim, after being beaten, stripped, left for dead, he's laying there literally half dead, probably bleeding out, and two potential saviors come along, right? No. A priest and a Levite come down. That sounds like the start of a really bad joke. Sorry. (laughs) A priest and a Levite come down the road. Both of them see the man. And both of them go to like the other side of the road. So they see this man bleeding. They see this man half dead. And they intentionally look at him and make their way to the other side of the road. Who does that? Why? What, what drove them to do that? What, was it just a lack of care? What, was it just apathy? Was it, was it, what was it? I would argue that both this priest and this Levite had a similar problem. They were both bound by ceremonial law. Now, that may not have been the only factor towards this, but I would argue this because, you know, in Levitical law, the priest could not touch anything that was near or in the vicinity of a dead body. If they did that, they would be ceremonially unclean. The Levites had similar standards. So I would argue that the priest and the Levite were were doing their best to somehow maintain the ceremonial purity. And because they could not accurately assess whether or not this man was dead, they didn't even want to take the chance. So you know what? I would help you, but I got this law to keep, so... It's tragic, right? It's hard to think about. But before we point the finger, (laughs) let's ask ourselves this. How often have we used some form of law, whether it's societal, whether it's political, whether it's ceremonial, whether it's cultural, whether it's self-imposed? How often have we used some form of law to keep ourselves from people? Now, I understand that that question has a lot of volatile implications. 
That, that could blow up in a number of ways. It's, it's got implications. An obvious one for me, just to be real, is the racial history of our country, okay? That there was a point in our country, and we're still dealing with ramifications of it today, where the legal system was actively involved in disadvantaging and segregating black people from white people. It's just a reality of our history. That residue was still being felt. There's also implications for our country's divided attitudes regarding immigration. There's implications there. Many of you have probably experienced this. I know I have, but I, I, I'll just talk about me. I don't want to talk about you. So in church culture, you know, uh, purity culture and the holiness movement and, you know, kind of the sacred-secular divide, I experienced this a lot growing up, where it was don't taste, don't touch, don't go near, don't engage anyone that's doing any of these various things that can make you impure. Anybody else experience that? Yeah, I, I experienced that in spades. I did. And it, it, was, it was literally this barrier to engagement. The lawyer at this point, like, like a lot or many people in the audience perhaps, in this Jewish audience, has a conundrum because he's probably wrestling in his mind, it really seems cruel to leave that man there, but at the same time, I understand that they were trying to maintain this purity that was required by the Levitical law. So while he's wrestling with that, him and the audience are probably hoping, well, okay, surely there's going to be another Jew who comes along who does not have those same requirements, and he's going to be the hero of the story to help this man, right? Jesus is slick, like I said. And Jesus introduces the, the least likely hero. He says in verses 33 to 35, a Samaritan, a Samaritan, I want to say that again for emphasis, a Samaritan comes along the road, and unlike the two keepers of the law, he sees this man and has compassion. Compassion. He tends to the man's wounds with wine and olive oil that I'm pretty sure he had not planned on using as an antiseptic that day. He puts the man on his horse, which likely means that he walked the rest of the way. He takes him to an inn and he tells the innkeeper that I will cover whatever added cost it takes to take care of him. As I said before, the ethnicity in the context of things here matters a great deal. Because if you know anything about the relationship dynamic of the Jews and the Samaritans, oh my goodness. I'm talking like long-standing, bitter beef between these two groups of people for various reasons. But many of them ran along racial ethnic lines, honestly. You remember when Jesus meets the woman at the well? You remember what her first response to him is? Sorry, Jesus, uh, why are you talking to me? You know the Jews and Samaritans have no dealings, right? We, we, don't, we don't talk to each other. Can I ask you a question? With whom do we have no dealings? Think about that for a moment. What person or what people group in your mind 
Are you unwilling to have any kind of dealings? I know that's an uncomfortable question because pick which uh, 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 kind of sides dynamic that you want, political, racial, socioeconomic, whatever. You know, if I'm a conservative, I don't want no dealings with them liberals over there and vice versa. Just one example. Who is it in our minds that we would have no dealings with? It is very intentional that Jesus inserts a Samaritan into this story at this point. And I know there's nuance to this, don't get me wrong. There's some instances where distancing distancing ourselves from certain people is necessary for valid reasons. I understand that. But the specific scenario in this parable points to our tendency at times to uphold a law, a custom, or a cultural norm at the expense of people. That's what Jesus is tackling here. And he drives the point home even further to a lawyer who I'm already sure is like reeling at this point. And he asked him this question in verse 36. Now, which of these three, sir, (laughs) do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? This expert in the law seems to realize that his expertise is basically in shambles right now. Because he has admit in verse 37 that the one who proved to be the neighbor was the Samaritan, one who, like by all Jewish accounts, he would have been in violation of like every kind of law in Jewish culture, societal, cultural, ceremonial, you name it. The least likely to be validated by the law is the one that keeps the law the closest Commentator Leon Morris points this out regarding what the lawyer might be thinking at this point. He says the lawyer has to ask himself, literally, did the priest and the Levite in trying to maintain their ceremony of purity, did they really keep the law? Did they really uphold the law here? Did they? Jesus makes it obvious to the lawyer that they didn't because in their efforts to maintain the letter of the law, They completely miss the spirit of it. And this brings me to my my third and and my final point, the law of love. The law of love. What this lawyer failed to realize is that the spirit of the law was not limited to ceremonial purity or uprightness. The spirit of the law is love. The law of love shouldn't drive us from people. It shouldn't drive us from meeting their needs. It should compel us towards them. When you look at the Levitical law for the priest in in the larger context of Scripture, you'll see that in actuality, the real purpose of those purity measures wasn't separation from the people. It was intercession for them. God was setting them apart to be intercessors on behalf of the people, not setting them apart for them to be pure for the sake of being pure. God's purpose for setting Israel apart 
was that they would be blessings to all the nations. That was his purpose. He said this explicitly. I didn't call you because you were the strongest. I didn't call you because you were the, the best at this or the best at that. You were the least among all the nations. But I called you to be a blessing for all the nations to see. Now, I know I've been talking a whole about, a lot about the law today, and I don't want you all to get nervous. Don't misunderstand me. We are not saved by the law. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Look at your neighbor and say, A to the men. <laughs> we in our own strength could never fulfill the law. We can't. Like the lawyer, even though we, we, like, we, we like justifying ourselves and making ourselves look right in most situations. We love that. The truth is we can never justify ourselves in the eyes of God. Never. This is where grace comes in. Jesus, in many ways, like this good Samaritan, saw us lying half dead. He saw us lying half dead. And he had compassion on us. But watch this, though. You could also see Jesus in the wounded man on the road. Beaten, stripped, humiliated. You, you can see Christ really in both instances here. And unlike what we would be tempted to do, he didn't retaliate to being beaten and stripped and humiliated and rejected by his own people, right? He didn't retaliate. Instead, he endured the beating, he endured the humiliation, he endured the cross, he bore our sin and our shame, and for all who turn to him in repentance, he'll tend to your wounds, He'll forgive you of your sin, he'll bandage you up, and he will care for you indefinitely. You don't have to worry about caring about yourself. You don't have to worry about the expense there. I paid the cost. You're good. That's the gospel, fam. What qualifies Jesus to be this mediator, this savior, this, this true high priest, right? The one to bridge the gap between God and man. What qualifies him is the fact that he perfectly fulfilled the law. He perfectly fulfilled the law of love. Matthew 5 and 17, Jesus says this. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law. That's not my purpose here. I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Jesus walked in perfect obedience to the Father, not out of obligation, but out of love, the perfect love of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's what drove Jesus. He followed a law of love as he sought to redeem mankind. He was bound by a law of love. One, one, of, one of the favorite scriptures that we like to quote all the time, I, I know I learned this as a kid, ad nauseum, John 3 and 16. There's so much depth in that scripture, man. It's wild. For God, so, I remember hearing a preacher one time say that the most important word in that verse is so. <laughs> For God so loved the world. There's emphasis there. He so loved the world. He didn't grudgingly love the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal 
life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus answered this question to several people that came up to him and asked, well, what work do I need to do in order to get in? What work do I need to do in order to work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work that you do. Believe. Believe on the one that he sent. Believe in me. That's the work. As to where this leaves us, for those of us who are redeemed, for those of us who have repented and come to faith in Christ, we are called by Jesus to do as he instructed this, this lawyer to do. Go and do likewise. Sharing the gospel, partaking in the mission of the kingdom. We're called as kingdom citizens to walk in the law of love, not to be justified, but because we are justified. I'm going to say that again. We as kingdom citizens are called to walk in the law of love, not for the purpose of being justified, but because we are justified. This reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6 specifically. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter of the law kills. The dogmatic adherence to a list of do's and don'ts kills folk. But the spirit of the law, love, gives life. I want to end with with a quote from from Leon Morris. He says, "If, if we really love God in the way which Jesus speaks, then we rely on him, not ourselves. This kind of love is our response to God's love for us, not the cause of his acceptance of us. Jesus is not commending a new system of legalism, somewhat different from the old one, but he's pointing to the end of all legalism. The lawyer wanted a set of rules, just like we do, that he could keep to merit or earn eternal life. Jesus is telling him that eternal life is not a matter of keeping rules at all. To live in love is to live the life of the kingdom of God. To live in love is to live the life of the kingdom of God. Family, let's go and do likewise. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word, God, that gives life. Thank you, God, for the example, the the many examples that we have in Scripture of instances, God, where you've had to correct our misconceptions. You've had to correct our preconceived notions and ideas. You've had, God, to check us in those moments where we want to justify ourselves. And God, it hurts and it stings, but God, we're grateful. We're grateful, God, that you don't leave us to our own devices, but God, that you lovingly draw us back to you And help us to see that the spirit of the law, the love of the law, is what needs to be presented 
and lived out in our lives. And we can't do that on our own. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your strength. We need your power. I pray, God, that you would help us. For those that do not know you, for those, God, that have not experienced your saving grace, for those, God, who have not placed their sin and their shame on your shoulders, Jesus, I pray that they would do so. I pray, God, that you would draw them to you, that their hearts would be touched and pricked, that they'd be convicted of their sin, and that, God, they would know and understand that you're not calling them to a list of do's and don'ts, but you're calling them, God, to a freedom that they could never imagine. And God, for those of us, God, who are already in the family, I pray that you would help us to follow the example of the Good Samaritan, showing compassion to the least likely, to those, God, that we might have otherwise deemed as enemies, to those, God, who we don't have in our mental neighborhood. God, would you help us and give us the boldness and the wisdom to push past those barriers and, God, to truly love our neighbor as ourselves. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.